0: I'd rather you thank you for the great hymn that reminds us.
1: when we come to Song of Solomon uh, chapter 7. And here in this chapter uh, the the writer answers the question that was asked at the very end of chapter 6. Why should you gaze at the Shunammite? Why are you staring at this woman, your beloved? And, And he answers that question in the opening part of chapter 7, in, in answering that question, he comments about the physical beauty of his beloved. And he admires that and he desires that. Physical beauty and the desire for such is not evil unless you pervert it. It is a gift from God that married couples are to enjoy. And so he looks at his beloved, and as you read down through this, interesting study one day, but as you read down through this, he just admires every part of her and her physical beauty. He takes note of, I believe, her nose, her neck, her legs, everything else. And he desires to enjoy that as a gift from God. And that is not sinful. But at the end of the day, this woman knows she is truly loved. It, it's a love story. And what a wonderful testimony that she can listen to her husband and delight that he takes delight in. In her, And he, she says there, verse 10, I am my beloved's. I'm his. I know he loves me. He cares for me. He desires me. And that's a wonderful thing to have between a husband and a wife. And so some of the things that we will read in this chapter, may, some of them may be confusing. What in the world does he mean by comparing her to whatever he compares her to? Others may seem awkward, but it's all about a married couple enjoying each other. Now, some make it allegorical. This is Christ speaking of his love for his church, and it's certainly an illustration of that. But again, I'm just reminded it's a wonderful love story between a married couple. And if married couples would just enjoy what this couple had, boy, marriage counseling would be a lot less. So follow as... I read this chapter. Again, why should you gaze at the Shudamite? How beautiful are your feet in sandals, O princess daughter. The curves of your hips are like jewels, the work of the hand of an artist. Your navel is like a round goblet, which never lack mixed wine. Your belly is like heap of wheat, fenced about with lilies. Your two breasts are like two fawns, twins of gazelle. Your neck is like the tower of ivory. Your eyes are like the pool of Sheshbom, by the gates of Bath-Rammon. Your nose is like the tower of Lebanon, which faces towards Damascus. Your head crowned like your head crowns you like camel, and your flowing locks of your head are like purple threads. The king is captivated by your tresses. How beautiful and how delightful you are, my love, with all your charms. Your stature is like palm trees. Your breasts are like its clusters. I said. I will climb the palm tree. I will take hold of its fruit stalks. Oh, may your breasts be like clusters of the vine and the fragrance of your breath like apples and your mouth like the best wine. It goes down smoothly for my beloved, flowing gently through the lips of those who fall asleep. I am my beloved's and his desire is for me. Come, my beloved, let us go into the country, let us spend the night in the villages. Let us rise early and go to the vineyards. Let us see whether the vine has budded and its and its blossom blossom has opened, and whether the pomegranate have bloomed. There will there I will give you my love. And the mandrakes. "...have given forth fragrance, and over doors are all choice fruits, both new and old, which I have saved up for you, my beloved." Well, may God bless the reading of His Word. And feel free to study some of that on your own. I've never looked at my wife and said, your neck is like... But, you know, that was certainly a phrase that he would use. Well, now let's take um, let's take the Trinity hymn book. Turning to 129, 129, Ferris Lord Jesus," let's stand together if you're able as we sing. Fairest Lord Jesus. Ruler of all nature Son of the life of our Lord and with Peter, James, and John. I imagine most of you are familiar with this narrative, but I believe it's a narrative that will strengthen our trust and our relationship to the Lord Jesus Christ. It will help us to focus upon Him. And with that, I trust, be encouraged to labor for the advancement of His kingdom. So follow as I read, starting, well, we'll start with verse 1 and read down through verse 8. And Jesus was saying to them, Truly I say to you, there are some of those who are standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. And six days later, Jesus took with him. Peter, James, and John, and brought them up on a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. And his garment became radiant, exceedingly white, as no launderer on earth can whiten them. And Elijah appeared to them along with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, It is good for us to be here. Let us make three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. For he did not know what to answer, for they became terrified. Then a cloud formed overshadowing them, and the voice came out of the cloud, This is my beloved Son, listen to him. And all at once they looked around and saw no one with them anymore except Jesus alone. As we come to this event known as the transfiguration of Jesus Christ, I I think it's important for us to put in context in which this event took place. There were a couple things that happened earlier that perhaps spoke to Christ's identity and His work. And what has happened perhaps would lead to some doubt as concerning the identity of Christ and and the work of Christ. And by that I mean that while Jesus, we're told, along with His disciples, were on their way to the villages of Caesarea Philippi, a question arose. And the question that came up in chapter 8 and verse 27 is, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And then he says, and who do you say that I am? So Peter answers for all the disciples, first of all, who other people think Jesus is. But then then, then Peter makes this confession that you are, the Christ. you are the Christ. You are the Messiah. The, the long-awaited One who, who would set up His kingdom. And Christ is delighted with that answer. He says to them, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but the Father who's in heaven. Good answer, Peter, when he said, You are the Christ. And Peter's confessing for all the disciples. were convinced that you're the Messiah. But what happens next? The work of Christ comes into question because of a statement that Christ makes. After hearing this confession... And giving thanks that God has shown the disciples the truth that he is the Messiah, then Jesus says, or it says, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem, suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and the scribes, and be killed and be raised on the third day now that would be shocking imagine the contrast one moment there's this confession you're the Messiah blessed are you Simon Barjona and the next thing they hear is I must go to Jerusalem I must suffer many things I must be killed can you imagine how confusing that would be for the disciples wait a minute You're the Messiah. You're the one that's been promised. You're the one we've been looking for. You're going to set up this marvelous kingdom. You're going to be the ruler in this kingdom. And now you're telling us that ordinary men are going to persecute you? They're even going to kill you? Remember Peter's reaction? You remember that? This can't happen. And he takes Jesus aside, you know, a little private time, Let me, let's talk about this a minute. And he, and he takes Jesus aside and says to him, God forbid it, Lord. This shall never happen to you. Can, can you imagine? You just confessed he's the Messiah and now you're rebuking him. But he's rebuking him because this is not how things were supposed to be. You're going to set up this marvelous kingdom and, and rule over this kingdom. You aren't going to be persecuted and be killed. So who are you? Because remember how Jesus answered Peter, right? Get behind me, Satan. Get behind me. I, I've got a work to do. I've been sent to the, by the Father to give my life, a ransom. Don't you try to stop me. And then we come to verse two of chapter nine, six days later. I imagine for those six days, the disciples are, are trying to put this all together. On the one hand, he's the Messiah. on the other hand, he's going to be suffered, and he's going to suffer persecution. And He's going to die. How is it that the Messiah is going to experience such cruel treatment from the hands of men? Is He really the Messiah? And what has He come to do? I can imagine for six days, which the Bible's silent on, but there must have been some questioning about who Christ really is and what is He going to do. And then we're told that six days later, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John and brought them to a high mountain by themselves. What's going to take place on this high mountain no doubt would would be beneficial for Christ. He's going to have a conversation with Elijah and Moses and And He's going to hear His Father say, This is My beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. No doubt that would be a means of encouragement to Him. But what what is going to take place on this high mountain, I believe was really for the benefit of the disciples. I mean, as you read through this passage, you you find this word there at the end of verse 2. And He was transfigured before them. Before them. Verse 7, then a cloud formed overshadowing them. And they hear this voice that comes out of the cloud. What's about to take place is to benefit these disciples, Peter, James, and John. J.C. Ryle says, the heart which had just been saddened by the plant that by the plain statement of Christ's suffering are at once gladdened by the vision of Christ's glory. The hearts that were just saddened by the plain statement of Christ's suffering are made glad by the vision of Christ's glory. And so they're brought to the high mountain and we read here that he was transfigured, before them. What does that mean? He was transfigured before him. What well, means there was a change, an actual change that took place. And this Jesus who they had followed now takes off the veil of his humanity and reveals His glory. I I don't believe that when it talks about He was transformed, that some light came out of heaven. I believe this transformation came from within. He now shows them who He really is. His, His Godhead that has been veiled throughout his earthly ministry is now revealed in a marvelous way. and God's glory is seen in him. Remember when, when the Apostle Paul describes the work of Christ there in Philippians, he says, he emptied himself. What does that mean? It, it doesn't mean he got rid of his Godhead. It doesn't mean he no longer possessed his Godhead. It means it was veiled so that when Christ walked on this earth, no matter how the artist might depict it, he did not have a glow around him. I mean, that would set him off, right? I mean, if somebody walked in here today and they were glowing, we would say either he's been near a nuclear plant or something else is going on. Christ had no glow about him as far as what man could see. With the eye of man, he looked like a man. He was fashioned like a bondservant. That's what they saw. But now on this high mountain, these three men had the opportunity to see something of the glory of God manifested in this man. What that must have been like, I don't know. I do know in parallel passages that they fell to the ground terrified. Mark records, His garment became radiant, exceedingly white, as no launderer on earth can whiten them. His glory is unveiled One man has said, this Jesus whom they had seen walking around every day with human form and characteristic was none other than the blazing radiance of God veiled. And they saw that. And then, two men from the past, Elijah, Along with Moses, appears and they're talking with Jesus. The, these two men appear in visible form and apparently in such a way that they are identified. You know, there, there's questions you might have. How do they know it was Elijah and Moses? We're not told except in the inspired word. It's, it's Elijah and Moses and, and they're having a conversation. With Jesus Christ. And then the next thing they hear is this. This is my beloved Son. Listen to Him. So, so put this in the context. For six days they've wondered, Who is this guy? We, we believe He's the Messiah. But now He tells us He's going to be persecuted and suffered and even be killed. And then they go to the mountain. And they see and hear this. And what they experienced on that mountain would no doubt strengthen their faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. And I trust it will do the same thing to us. There there are three ways that their trust and relationship to Christ was strengthened. Three thoughts about Christ. That we give them greater confidence and greater strength to do his work. And I ought to set these before you. I'll open up a little bit, but don't get I don't want anybody thinking I may pass out if we're going to do three. You won't. I won't keep you here that long. Number one it confirms the identity of Christ it really confirmed the identity of Christ. Six days ago, Peter says, you are the Christ. He and the other disciples were convinced of that confession. But then upon hearing the words of Christ concerning the necessity of Him to go through the suffering and the persecution, perhaps brought doubt about their confession. And as far as we know, it had been six weeks of silence What Jesus has just said is contrary to everything we thought. We thought this Messiah would come and be a ruler in a kingdom and put all the enemy down and set up a kingdom for himself. What are we to make of this dying and suffering? And here they're given a real vision of who Jesus Christ was. The veil of His earthly appearance is taken away. And for a few moments, God allowed the disciples to see the Lord as He truly is. What a tremendous, awesome, majestic, and glorious sight! I was—I told some of you it. Micah called me last night. They're on vacation, and they were in Grand Rapids. And as we were talking, he he said to me, "I went to one of the most beautiful sites in all of Grand Rapids yesterday." So I'm thinking in my head, well, "Where'd he go? Well, I, my, Grand Rapids is a nice place, but what's he this? What's the most beautiful sight he could ever see in Grand Rapids? Well, heritage Puritan Reform." Seminary has opened a new bookstore, brand new bookstore in Grand Rapids. And I, I, I went there when I was in Grand Rapids last time. It is a nice store. But Micah was just in awe. He said, I walked in that place and, and I was overwhelmed with the beauty of all those books. I asked him <laughs> how much money he had left. And he said, just to finish the story, he said, I didn't walk out with anything. I was so overwhelmed. I thought it would be wiser for me to take a catalog and look at the catalog for a while before I just go and buy something. But I mean, it was the most beautiful place in Grand Rapids. Peter, James, and John saw the most amazing, beautiful sight that human eyes have ever seen seen the glory of Christ revealed. They were given the assurance that the time of the royal garments to be put on had not yet come, but for a glimpse, just just for a glimpse, you can see something of it. The writer of Hebrews says, we do not see all the things subject to Him. Once they looked up again, there was Christ in human form again. But that momentary glimpse was that of what is yet to come. He will be highly exalted. And may I say this, those men would never get over that sight. John writes The word became flesh and dwelt among us and we saw his glory the glory as the only begotten from the father full of grace and truth I believe part of what John is saying there refers to that we have seen his glory Peter writes 2 Peter chapter 1 and verse 16 For we did not follow cleverly devised tales when we made made known to you the power of the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of His majesty. Peter says this isn't a fairy tale. I've seen Him in all His glory. And then James. James is one of the sons of thunder. I mean, James ends up being such a passionate man for Christ. James is the only one whose death of the apostles is recorded in Scripture. The one time that James appears all by himself is in Acts chapter 12 when we read of his death. Because he was a man zealous and ambitious to be used by God as his instrument. Where did that ambition and where did that he'd see the glory of Christ? So this man deserves our devotion, our allegiance, our loyalty, our worship. We need to know something of that which Paul addressed in in Philippians three: eight. I count all things. To be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. So this this event on this mountain confirmed the identity of Christ. He is truly the Messiah. Secondly, it confirms the work of Christ. It confirms the work of Christ. The disciples couldn't imagine a suffering and dying Messiah. How how could that ever be? They thought the Messiah would, would be a triumphant king who would be victorious over all of His enemies. But with this event, the Father confirms the work of His Son. On this mountain, the disciples see two of the greatest figures in history of Israel, Moses and Elijah. These two men represent a summary of the Old Testament for the disciples, the Law and the Prophet. One man has said they were the living, walking two volumes of the Old Testament. We read here, they were talking to Jesus. How would you like to hear that conversation? They were talking to Jesus. We get to hear it. In Luke chapter 9, Let's turn over there. I just want you to see it because you know, I suppose all of you want to eavesdrop on this conversation, right? Luke chapter 9. And behold, verse 30, and behold, two men were talking with Him, and they were Moses and Elijah, who, appearing in glory, were speaking of His departure. Which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. What was Moses and Elijah and Jesus talking about? What was about ready to take place? His departure, his death on a tree. The death of Christ was the focus of their conversation. When it says here, his departure, that word literally means the exodus. The exodus. That which will take place to bring about deliverance from the bondage of sin. And so they hear the two of them, I mean the three of them in this conversation about Christ's departure, about His upcoming death, that would give some credence to to what Christ said concerning I must suffer and, and I will be put to death. But then they hear a voice from the Father, and it's directed at the disciples, and He expresses His love. This is My beloved Son. And then what does He say? Listen to Him. Listen to what He has to say. That puts some authority, if you hear God the Father saying, listen to Him. That, better, that should take any doubt away from your mind, what he says that he will do. The, the father is endorsing what the son has said. Right? I mean I, 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 you can illustrate it with, you know, you have two children who are playing, and the mother sends one of the other children out and say, "Tell them to come in." And they go, the third child goes out and says, "Mom said it's time to come in." And they say, ah, no, that's just you. We don't, we're not going to believe you. And so mom comes out. And mom says, Did you hear what Jill said? Well, yeah, but we didn't hear it from you. Well, listen to her. That, that pretty well settles it. So, so when the disciples hear, hear God the Father say, Listen to him, that settles it. He, he deserves our devotion and our work and our thanksgiving. He's the one who will give His life as a ransom for us from the bondage of sin. It confirms the work that He came to do. Now you know why Jesus says to Peter, get behind Me, Satan. I've got a work to do here. Don't you you come between Me and that work. The Father has sent Me to give My life. So it confirms the identity. It confirms the work. But then thirdly and finally, it confirms the future of Christ. This event was used to point the disciples into the future. This is what the Son will be. This is what will happen after His death. I, I believe that this points to what said. Look at verse 1 again. Truly I say to you, there are some of those who are standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. What does that mean? Well, I believe it's referring to you're going to see Christ in all of His glory, which points to His glorious kingdom before you die. And now six days later, here they are. And they see who Christ is. And they see the future of this glorious kingdom that Jesus Christ has established. Can you imagine how if you come to understand that, if you come to see the future in light of what you've seen in Christ, His glory manifested. His glory unveiled as it were. And you see Him as He truly is. How that would give you energy for the work for that kingdom. I'm not on a fool's errand. There's a glory that's yet to be revealed. And I want to work to that end. I want to see that kingdom established. And during those dark difficult days when they themselves would be experiencing real persecution, this event would come back to their mind. When they're about ready to suffer hardship, they would think back to that mountain and the glory of Christ and His glorious kingdom which is being established through Him and that would give them the energy and the endurance to labor for that kingdom. When one is assured of the outcome, one's courage and one's endurance ought to keep going as difficult as it might get at times. We're not going to quit. The future in Christ is victorious. And so as the psalmist says, weeping may last for a night, but shouts of joy come in the morning. We've got to look to the future. Believe me, if I lived only in the present, I would be one depressed, discouraged little puppy, huddled up in a corner someplace in a fetal position and just say, let me die. Enough. But what ought to keep us going is that glory that is yet to be revealed. So I trust this afternoon going up to this mountain for us will all the more confirm in our minds who Christ is, His identity. That it will all the more confirm in our minds and our hearts the work that Christ came to do. And it will all the more confirm in our minds and our hearts the future that is found in Christ. Press on, brethren. Do not give up. Let's pray. Father, we give You thanks for Your Word. And we thank You for the encouragement, the strength that we can receive from that Word. Father, help us. Help us go to that high mountain over and over again. And be reminded of who You are. Be reminded of the work of Jesus Christ. Be reminded of the future that's yet to be revealed. Uh, Father, we we can talk about all these things, but Father, we pray that (coughs) these things would be branded on our hearts and minds that we would press on. And by Your grace, persevere and endure all the way to the end. So take Your Word, bless and use it, we pray, for Your glory and honor. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, in closing, take your hymns of grace. Hymns of grace number 184. 184. Behold, come behold the wondrous mystery. 184. Let's stand together as we sing. Come behold the wondrous mystery in the dawning of the King.